Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew, chapter 16. We will be spending almost all of our time in that part of the Bible this morning. So, it would be a benefit to you to have a Bible open to Matthew, chapter 16. I was thinking, as uh, there are so many here, we have so many visitors here, we have some of our members who have not been able to get out, now able to get out again. About this time a year ago, it was pretty lonely in this building. Uh, There were... I think we were at 10 this time last year, and uh, so I know that most of us were watching online and that kind of thing, but I tell you what a blessing it is. Sometimes uh, we don't appreciate what we have until we don't have it, and uh, I hope that we can take that lesson uh, from the things that we've been going through over the last year or so, that it is a tremendous blessing to actually be able to be here in person and worshiping together, encouraging one another face-to-face. It is good to see you want to welcome those who are visiting with us, who are watching in some other format. Uh, we're just thankful that you have an interest in spiritual things, and it is an encouragement to us. Thank you for being here. I want to begin by reading in Matthew 16 and verse 18. Matthew 16 and verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does Jesus mean? Why does he single out Peter? You are Peter. What is the rock when he says, on this rock I will build my church? What does he mean by my church? What are the gates of hell? And why will they not prevail against it? Matthew 16, 18 is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. It is a pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus. It is a pivotal realization in the minds of the disciples about who Jesus is. And Jesus gives a pivotal view into his plans for his people and the future. So you would think that if a passage is so vital that it would be really clear and we would all agree on what it teaches, but actually, not at all. In fact, some scholars call this the most controversial passage in the Bible. It is the passage where Catholics and Protestants part ways, even though there were no Catholics and Protestants in the time of Jesus. And the answers matter. Because the answers determine how we think about ourselves and how we think about others, how we relate to other disciples. And so I just want to spend a few minutes this morning asking the question, what is the church of Christ? When Jesus says, I will build my church, what does that mean? And my goal is really simple. This is going to be a simple study. I want to look through this passage and figure out what these things mean. And then I just want to give you a few observations and applications to come out of that about what that might mean for you and me today. So what that's going to mean practically is that I need your attention for a few minutes to do careful study, and then we'll talk more broadly. So I hope that you'll have your Bible open. I hope that you'll be paying attention over the next few minutes as we read together and think together about this scripture. Matthew 16 and verse 13. Matthew 16 and verse 13. The text says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So here the question is Jesus' identity. And that's been an ongoing question for the disciples. From time to time, they will ask the question, who is this guy after some miracle is done? And they seem to go back and forth. Sometimes they say, oh, I know who he is. And then sometimes they seem to be a little more confused or uncertain, especially when they have a vision for what the Messiah is going to be that Jesus doesn't match up with. So sometimes they'll say things like, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And then other times they'll just say, hmm, I think we've found the Messiah. And then other times they'll say, who can this be that the winds and the waves obey him? So Jesus starts in verse 13 by asking, well, what are the crowds saying about me? So verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, 
Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, you might notice those are all odd answers because all of those people are dead. So if someone says, hey, who do you think I am? And all you get is a bunch of dead guys. Those are weird answers. Okay, but I want you to see why they're giving these weird answers. First of all, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, who had been beheaded by Herod. And remember, Herod was already saying Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead with now miraculous powers. So that's kind of going around. And then also it says Elijah. Elijah is the figure at the end of Malachi who was supposed to come before the Messiah. So some are saying maybe Jesus is that prophet before. Now Jesus actually identifies John the Baptist in chapter 17 as Elijah. So he links those two together. But that's some of what people are saying. Jeremiah is also odd. There's some indication that some... uh, prophecies in this time, some messianic thought, had Jeremiah as a figure coming before the Messiah. Some people think that Jeremiah here might have to do with how Jesus kind of lived like Jeremiah and his message was rejected a lot like Jeremiah's was. But you've got some odd answers. There are some other answers, by the way, that they hold back on. Like some people are saying that you're possessed by Satan and some people saying that you're a Samaritan. Okay, but they don't give Jesus those answers, just the good ones. Verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who do you say? That question is to the whole group. The you there is plural. But Peter answers for the group. Peter says, I'll tell you who we think you are. And I want to take a moment with that because how we think about Peter in this text is really important. I want to show you that Peter often does this where he will speak and ask for the group. In Matthew 15 and verse 15, it says, But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. This is the parable of the uh, what goes into a man is not what defiles him, but what comes out of a man. So Peter says, Explain it to us. He's speaking for the group. Or this is Matthew 19, 27, after the rich young ruler and the, the camel going through the eye of a needle. It says, Then Peter said in reply, See, we, the disciples, have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter's asking, but Peter is sort of a spokesman for everyone. Uh, This is Matthew 10 and verse 2. When the disciples are listed, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. I want you to notice that first, because when you see a list of apostles, who is the first apostle? It's Peter. Peter is the guy who is always out in front. We would say he's something like the unacknowledged leader. And most groups have someone like this. Sometimes it's like Peter, the guy with the biggest mouth. He's the one who's out in front. Everybody acknowledges, oh, yeah, well, Peter, if anybody's going to ask a question, it'll be Peter. If anybody's going to answer Jesus' question, it'll probably be Peter. Some people are like that, and Peter is one of those people. But it's not as if Peter is answering for the group as if he is better than others or further along than others. It's just that Jesus asks a question, who do you think is going to answer? It's going to be Peter. So Peter's answer in verse 16, you are the Christ." The son of the living God. The word Christ here is the word for Messiah. And it links all those Old Testament visions of what the great Savior was going to be. The branch, the righteous branch, the son of David, the Messiah, the king, the ruler. And he also says, you are the son of the living God. They have come to believe that Jesus is unique in the way he relates to the Father. He's different. He's not just a man. He is something more than a man. He is the son of God. He was sent by God as son. So again, this is a huge moment. 
Because now the disciples have finally reached a point where they can say confidently, we know you are the one God sent to save the world. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Jesus blesses Peter because of the confession. And the reason is, he says, it's not born of human ingenuity or human wisdom. This doesn't come from flesh and blood, which is another word for people. This is something that comes from God. And I want to remind you, Jesus says this specifically. This is Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So you have hidden these things and you have revealed them to little children, the disciples, the humble the lowly people, and you've hidden them from the wise and understanding. A little later he's going to say in that same text, verse 27, he's going to say no one can know these things unless the Son reveals them. So God has revealed these things, and when Peter accepts them, he says you're blessed because you have received the revelation from God. Let me break that down a little bit. The disciples have seen Jesus heal. They have seen Jesus calm the storm with a word. They have seen all that Jesus has taught And what they have decided is, I'm seeing something that's not human. They didn't come up with this conclusion. Instead, it was revealed when God showed them who his son was, and Jesus revealed his glory. All right, so verse 18. It says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So to begin with, I mean, this is the the pivotal verse, although verse 19 is going to be important too. To begin with, I think it's important to remember that the word Peter is a nickname. The man's name was Simon. And the nickname Peter is a nickname Jesus gave. There is a a passage that talks about this specifically in John 1, verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. That is, Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter. Cephas is the Greek word. Peter is the other Aramaic word. And he says, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Cephas is the Aramaic word. Peter is the Greek word. But he is saying this word means not his name, but rock. We would say something like Rocky. Okay, if you ever have somebody who, I guess guys used to be called rock. There were some famous rocks. But, you know, usually we would call somebody in a nickname Rocky. And that's what Jesus does. He looks at him. And I love this scene because it says, it says specifically he looked at him. I just picture him standing in front of him, maybe with his arms on his shoulders and saying, I'm going to call you Rocky. Now, your name is Simon, but I'm going to call you Rocky. And it's funny because there's really nothing Rocky about Peter. Peter's not affirm anything. In fact, Peter is sort of wishy-washy. But there's something to that that Jesus is calling some characteristic to the fore about Peter, about what he's going to do to Peter and how he's going to use Peter. And so this nickname to me, given by Jesus specifically, seems to have some significance. So when you get to Matthew 16 and verse 18, this comes up again, and it's the same uh, structure as what we just saw. You're Simon, you'll be called Peter. And here, Matthew 16 and verse 18, it says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. So Jesus now takes that nickname and makes it take on some extra significance. You are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. I take that to be a pun. 
Now, you might notice that that's probably not what people typically say about this text. And I understand, and I want you to know, I'm not trying to destroy everyone's faith in this moment. I'm trying to explain what I think is meant in this text. And so don't panic on me. Let me work through it. You are the rock, Peter, and on your rock, on this rock, I will build my church. I do not believe that the rock here is the confession of Peter that he has made in verse 17. Although, I will say that that confession is absolutely essential, as we'll see in just a moment. I do not believe that rock is Jesus, although certainly Jesus is the foundation of the church and our faith and the foundation of God's building. He is the cornerstone. But neither of those things make sense with what's actually said in the text. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You are Peter, and on your confession, you are Peter, and on me. Neither of those make sense of you are Peter, and on this rock. Now, the reason those explanations are so widespread is because of how Roman Catholicism has taught this verse for many years, that Catholics take this passage to mean that Peter is being established as the first pope. And so they say what Jesus means is Peter is given authority as head of the church. And when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, he means on you, Peter, and the papacy that will come after you, I will build my church. I don't believe that. And I don't believe that's what Peter is saying. However, I do believe that Peter being the rock is the most natural way to read this text. So let's talk about what that means in just a moment. Before we get to that, I want to look at what he says about building his church. In verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus wants to build something. And very often, when he talks about building, he'll talk about building on the rock. Remember the story of the wise and foolish builders. One builds their house on the sand. They are the foolish ones. One builds their house on the rock. They are the wise ones. And in the same way, Jesus wants to build something. He wants to build it on a firm foundation. He wants to build it on a rock. What does he want to build? He uses the word church. And this is a word that has lost all its significance for us. It has been washed under by centuries of different meanings for the word church. The word church means an assembly or a group of people. That's what a church is when Jesus uses the word. It refers to a people. Jesus wants to build his group of people, his community, his nation. And he has already begun that work. He has gathered people together. They are his disciples at this moment. And they are following him and learning from him. They are his. They belong to him. And yet they're just kind of coming along. It's beginning at this stage. And yet he is saying, I want to build my people. And I will build them on this rock. That work has begun, but it will begin in earnest in the mouth of Peter. It will begin with these men beginning to preach in the name of Jesus. Peter is out in front. Peter is considered, as we've already read, first among the disciples. Although that is first among equals, it is not greater than others, but he is certainly out in front. In fact... We know that. There is a very interesting story, just a couple of chapters over in Matthew 18, where the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, first of all, if they knew Peter was already in line to be the first pope, they're not going to ask that question. 
we know who's greatest. You already told us. But there's something else interesting that happens there. Do you remember how Jesus responds when they, when they ask him that? He does not say, oh, I'm glad you asked. Peter, come on up here. This is my guy. Do you remember what he does? He calls a little child. He says, come here. And he says, this, this is the greatest. Be like a little child. Jesus was an awesome teacher. This is what you need to think of as the greatest. This was a moment where if Jesus ever wanted to say, there is going to be a hierarchy and a head in my kingdom, let me establish that so that everyone knows it and we know who to follow. That's not what he did. Instead, there was this admonition, don't fight and jockey for power amongst yourselves. And so Peter becomes a spokesman for this movement. And the group begins to grow. And you can just trace that. Peter will be the main spokesman. We'll talk about this in a minute. In Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. It will say that Peter stands up with the eleven. Peter will be among the first to go to work with the Samaritans in Acts 8. When the gospel goes out of that southern region and into Samaria. Peter will be the first to go to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. He will be the one to defend the Gentile mission to the rest of the church in Acts chapter 11. He will be the one to say in Acts chapter 15, it's okay for Gentiles not to be circumcised. All of this is going to happen by the mouth of Peter. That does not mean that he was the first pope. But it does mean that the church, in a real sense, had its beginning with God's work through Peter. And so I do not think it's a stretch for Jesus to say, you're rocky, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. If anything, doesn't that give God more glory to use a man like Peter and say, I'm going to build something on you when you're not strong enough to do much yourself, and I'm going to make it grow into something even stronger. Not only that, but Peter is, is as I've said, representative of the other apostles as well. It's not as if their work is not a foundation of anything either. Instead, all of them are going to be part of how Jesus begins and continues this work. Jesus will build his people, and he will use these men to do it. And that's what he is saying. Verse 18 then says, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hell is an incorrect translation. You've heard me say that before. The word here is Hades or death. And uh, so this is one of those translations that got mistranslated a long time ago in the, the old King James Version. And the newer versions are scared to change it to what it really says. But it says the gates of death, the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. Gates represent the power and the domain of death. And death, Jesus says, will not be able to overcome my people. My people will be free from death. They will be protected against death. They will be victorious over death. I am building a people that death can't touch. And I'm doing it through you guys. This little band of people on a Galilean hillside. I'm going to change the world through my people built through you. I will remain the master and the Lord of my people even though death attempts to intervene. Verse 19 now. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He is still addressing Peter. The yous here are singular. He says, I will give you these keys, Peter. Keys represent an authority or a power over something. You have the keys to the things in your possession. 
because they are yours. You have the right to go in and out and to use them. And they are used that way in Scripture. This is Isaiah 22. Uh, This is about Eliakim. It says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. You hear that. I'm giving him authority. I'm giving him the right to control these things. Uh, Jesus says in Revelation 1.17, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Death and the realm of death, Hades, that we've already been talking about. So if he has the keys, that's good. That means he's in control. He has authority over death. So Peter, in verse 19, is told, I will give you the keys to the kingdom, authority over some aspect of the kingdom. And what that means is explained by Jesus' further statement in verse 19. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing. This is how Jewish teachers describe interpreting the law. If you would read the law as a Jewish rabbi, you would then say, okay, well, what does that mean? And what does that mean today? What do we need to do? And if a command, they say, is binding today, that means that we need to follow it today and you need to do something different. But if a command is loosed today, then that means, well, it said it then, but I don't think we need to do that. And so we would bind or loose. We would say the law needs to apply or not apply. And he says, Peter, you will be able to bind and loose. You will have keys to the kingdom. And the things that you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and the things that you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that God has to accept whatever the apostles decide? Here's Peter, and all of a sudden, Peter gets to just make up the rules. You know, I don't like that, so I've got the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to make that wrong. I think we know better than that. What he is saying is that Peter, and we'll read a little minute, in a minute uh, the rest of the apostles as well, Peter will have words that reflect the will of heaven, the decisions of heaven. In fact, these words that are translated shall be bound in heaven is actually, if you look carefully at the text, it is actually will have been bound in heaven and will have been loosed in heaven. The point is that Peter and the rest of the apostles speak in a way that reflects heaven's will. I could just say it this way. Peter, you're going to be speaking for God. Peter, you're going to have the authority to speak for God. Or we might just say you're inspired by God. Now, this same power is spoken of much more broadly than Peter in Matthew 18, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Where he is talking to a broader group than just one disciple. And this you is plural. So he's not just saying, Peter, you've got keys that nobody else has got. Instead, he is saying, I'm going to do a work. I'm going to collect a people, and I'm going to do it through these ragtag band of disciples and apostles. I'm going to use you and speak through you. Matthew 16 and verse 20 now. Matthew 16, 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. See, that time is not yet. Some things must happen first, but Jesus is giving an indication this is where we're headed. So, let's sum all this up. When Peter confesses on behalf of all the apostles that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God, Jesus informs him that he is going to build his people on Peter and give Peter and the rest of the apostles the authority to speak for him and give people access to the kingdom of God, keys for the others to go in and out. 
So, what is the church of Christ? What is it that Jesus is describing? What is it that's happening here that Jesus is signaling? I think we need to move past some of these interpretations that are about focused on uh, finding some role for Peter here and say, just what are we saying? And I would say it this way. The church of Christ is the people of Jesus. The people of Jesus. So we're going to talk about how the people of Jesus are united momentarily. But if you want to ask the question, what is the church of Christ? I think we must get back to the original understanding that church is a term that refers to people. It is a people word. We've got to think in terms of people. It is not an organization. He is not saying that we're going to see in the aftermath of the apostles' work, organizations spring up everywhere. Instead, we see disciples made, person by person. We see families converted. The church of Christ, the people of Jesus, is not a building. That's a modern misunderstanding of church. We use that term sometimes, and we talk about a church building. A church is a group of people. The place they meet may be called a building or maybe called something else, but that is not what the church is. The church of Christ that that Jesus is referring to here is not a denomination. That is, it's not some massive conglomeration of presidents and cardinals and bishops and archbishops. It's just Jesus' people. Jesus is not referring to that when he says, I want my people. I want to collect and build my people. So I am saying it is essential that we cut through all those centuries of intervening noise between us and Jesus and get back to what he really means. He is saying, I'm going to build my people and death won't touch them. What is notable about that is that the word is singular. I will build my church. And when the word is singular, it means that he is going to take a bunch of different people and unite them. They will become one. And so I want to just take a moment and point out in this text that the people of Jesus, as Jesus foresees them, are united by a few things. First of all, they are the people of Jesus united by a common belief. Look back in verse 15 with me. In Matthew 16 and verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus' people have a unique belief about Jesus. They believe that he is more than just a man, more than just a prophet, more than just a teacher. They believe he is the Messiah. They believe he is the Son of God. But that belief rewires their lives. They become different people because they believe that. In fact, they become Known by that belief. The word Christian has that belief as its sole focus. That if you only knew one thing about these people, you knew they believed that the Christ had come in the person of Jesus. And so that belief united them and made them his people. And it means also that like these first disciples, we have seen and heard Jesus to the point that our faith is now ready to be stated. I have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That means there's no automatic access to being in the people of Jesus. We don't get in by family inheritance. We don't get in because we are Jewish ancestry. We don't get in because our parents 
wanted us to. Instead, we only become a part of Jesus' people when we believe in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. They are also a people united by a common master. In verse 18, it says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That my is so possessive. He is not even just saying, I will build God's church, although it certainly is God's church. He is saying, these are my people. They have a unique relationship to me, Jesus. Jesus' people will not be all the people of the world who love God or want to try to do what's right. They are specifically the people who have agreed to follow Jesus as their Lord and Master. Specifically those people and no others. They are united by the fact that they are my people. And so Jesus becomes a common master. As I was thinking about how to illustrate this, I thought about political parties. Uh, when you, have the, you read about the internal discussions going on in a Democratic Party or the Republican Party, th- these are people that are united in one sense. They have a common you know, belief system and, and common goals. But very often, Republicans and Democrats, either one, they don't know, they don't agree on who is actually going to lead them. So every four years, who is going to be our nominee? Who are we going to have that will be the face of the party? And there are the people that are on the far left of the party and the far right of the party. They all argue, we don't know who's going to lead. They're united, but they're not really united because they don't know who they're following. It is not just that Jesus' people all kind of think the same way. It is that Jesus' people all know who we're following. We know, even if we disagree on some of the specifics about what we think, we know who's in charge. We have a common master. In fact, Jesus is the one who teaches us that we don't ever jockey for influence or power amongst ourselves. Jesus is the one who says, don't be called teacher or father. You have one teacher. You have one father. Don't lord it over each other. Don't be like the Gentiles who are trying to get power over each other. Don't seek to be the greatest. Don't seek the left or the right hand. You follow. You have a master. And that's what makes you a part of Jesus' people. They are also a people united by a common hope. In verse 18, we've read this already. He says, the gates of hell or death shall not prevail against it. So here is the hope that because we are committed to him and following him, we believe in him, we have confidence that death can't touch us and we will share in his victory over death. We share the perspective of Jesus. And this is important. That there is more to this life than just what we experience right now. And that the path to God may involve suffering and death. And let's be very clear about that. That's hard to believe in practice. Peter has trouble with it. We cut the reading off at verse 20. But you keep reading. And Jesus begins to talk about in verse 21. The idea that he is going to suffer and be killed and be raised the third day. And what does Peter say? Far be it from you, Lord. That'll never happen to you. Now, wait a minute, Peter. Whoa, 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 whoa. You were doing so good. I thought you said, we believe you're the Christ and the Son of God. Don't you think he knows what he's talking about? And yet, for Peter to accept that death might be a part of God's plan, and yet God could conquer death, that's hard. So when Jesus talks about this, he is pulling us in to the hope that says the gates of death will not be victorious over the Son of God. 
we know the gates of death won't stand because they didn't stand against Jesus. And so if we are a part of Jesus' people, we are united by, if I believe in him and I follow him, I can share in his victory. And the people of Jesus are united by a common spirit. Look in verse 24 with me. After Peter is corrected, Jesus says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Here it is. The church of Jesus is the people who follow Jesus and take up their crosses and embrace suffering with him in the hope that we'll be raised like him. We value Jesus' approval more than the world's approval. We want what he offers. We learn from him how to do hard things for God, like go through difficulty. And so we live and we work together and we encourage one another to maintain that same spirit. And sometimes we see in one another and in ourselves that spirit flagging and we get discouraged and distracted by the world and we call one another back. Don't forget what our master did for you and what he calls you to do. That spirit unites us so that we don't give up and we don't quit. We take up our cross. That's what Jesus wanted to build. He wanted to build a people like that. A people who were united because they were unique because of what he had done for them and the path he had shown them. I want you to go with me over to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. With all of that in mind, we can read with proper context what happens in Acts chapter 2. After the resurrection of Jesus, after the ascension of Jesus, you see Jesus begin to make good on his promise. I say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, it says that Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So here Peter begins to preach. And the sermon, of course, is about Jesus. It's a sermon that is intended to produce in his audience a belief and a commitment to a master and a new hope and a new kind of spirit that comes from this unique message about this unique servant of God they have come to believe and know is Lord and Christ. Down in verse 36 of Acts 2, Peter concludes his sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucify. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Down in verse 47, it says that this group, they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you see what happens here? 
Peter throws out the net and pulls in a tremendous number of new believers in Jesus. Did you notice some of the terms that he used? That they had a common belief? Verse 36 says that this Jesus whom you crucified is Lord and Christ. A common master, which is the idea of Lord. He is not only the Messiah, he is also Lord and therefore is to be served. There is a common hope here. In verse 38, he talks about the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then there is a common spirit that is shown by the fact that they continue to serve Jesus and be together trying to learn more about him and then trying to serve others. So in other words, Jesus builds his church, his people, just the way he told Peter he would. He creates a people. He builds them. And he builds them in a very specific way on Peter. Not because Peter can sit around and boss everybody around, but because Peter is one of the instruments through whom he speaks, especially in these early stages. And so, Jesus does what he said he would do. He collects and unifies his people. All right, so... I got three questions, and we'll be done. I don't know how you hear a lesson like this, but I suspect there are some so what's that are going through your head. Okay, well, that's all really interesting and everything, but what do we do with that? The first question of the so what's is, what about denominations? We live in a very different world today, don't we, than what Jesus describes. When Jesus says this, There's not thousands of different types of churches. And so when he says, I'll build my church, that seems so straightforward and simple. It's just Jesus' people. So this text can raise different questions for us today. We are not unified the way disciples seem to have been in the first century. And it seems to me there are a couple of responses that we give to that uh, that are very common. Uh, One response is to say, well, you know, just anybody who says anything good about Jesus, that must be who he's talking about when he says, that's my church. We're all the church. That's one response. The other response that's very common to me is to say that Jesus was just talking about one group in the way we think about it today, the one true church. And so there are some groups, uh, Catholics come to mind, Mormons come to mind, that would say, we are the one true church. When Jesus said, I'll build my church, singular, he meant us. It seems to me that both of those directions are misguided. To say that, you know, the church is just everybody who might have any good thought about Jesus, or to say that the church is only some modern group that we can identify by some brand name or allegiance like that. The problem is we read our concept of church into the text. And what I'm trying is to get us out of that habit. Sometimes it seems to me among members of churches of Christ that we will take that same logic and say, no, what Jesus meant when he said my church is he meant the full set of churches of Christ. That's what he was talking about. All the churches of Christ. And that's the only true church. Of course, we don't know what to do with history then and what happened before, you know, 1800. But I don't think that's the right approach either. Let me just say it this way. When you read in Acts 2 about how Christians were made, Christians were not made 
The church was not established because of any affiliation with any other man. It was never about the group of people. It was always about the connection to Jesus. Always. So, if we're going to evaluate who is Jesus' people, it can only be by connection to Jesus. It cannot be by our connection with other people. Which means we're not going to be able to say it's this or this or this that is the one true church. In Acts 2 and verse 47, it says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, The Lord knows those who are His. It seems to me that instead of spending all our time trying to judge and determine who everybody is and how, who's right and who's wrong and all of that, we need to remember that that's the Lord's job and not mine. And to be confident in His ability to keep His people the way He has determined He would. So what does that mean practically? It seems to me that if Jesus wants unity, we need to pursue that as much as we can. And that means that there are going to be denominational things that I can't be a part of because denominations are very often the fruit of division. Even in the names, there are allegiances to men that spring from old, old debates and arguments. But I want to pursue unity as much as I can because Jesus wants a unified people. And most of all, I want to encourage us to remember this is about our connection to Jesus and not our connection to other people, not our connection to a group. Second, what about local churches? You know, when we talk about church, very often this is the question people have, uh, what, what do I look for? What am I thinking about as I meet together or I search for a group of people to meet with? What about local churches? I think Jesus' perspective helps us here. Because Jesus reminds us his church is about people. I will build my people. It is not an organization that is there to provide services for us. It's a very governmental, modern way of looking at the church. That it's, it's something I can get something from. Jesus says, no, this is my people. It is not about an organization there to provide some kind of entertainment for us. Some kind of spiritual experience. That I go there and I get something from them. Instead, Jesus is teaching us. Being a part of him means living in community with other disciples. Being a part of a people. I have a concern that springs out of all that we've gone through with the virus. Uh, we've spent a lot of time over the last year, and I know a lot of Christians, I've talked to a lot of you and a lot of Christians in other places who have been very spiritually interested. It has opened up new abilities for us to listen to other people's sermons and services, and we can sort of visit around. But I have a concern that very often what that looks like is we begin to think that we're just sort of spiritual consumers. You know, I get a little of this, and I get a little of that, and... Uh, I like that. And in fact, what begins to happen is we begin to say, well, the sermon is the important part of worship, right? So I, I listen to that guy. I like that guy. And I don't really like that guy. So I'll listen. I think we can easily forget that Jesus wants us to be in community with other Christians. That's what we're doing. 
That's why we're here. That's why a local church is so vital. We cannot separate service to Jesus from community with his people. I will build my church. I will not build my individual disciples who will live as islands. Instead, they will be my people. And all through the New Testament, you see that. When people go and preach in a certain place, they don't leave individual disciples in their wake. They leave churches, local churches, so that people can be together and encourage one another. So, when I'm looking for a local church and I'm asking the question, what's important about a local church? I want to ask, what is taught? What is lived? What is practiced and accepted? Are these people serious about following Jesus? Am I going to be able to be in community that will help me grow in Christ? Those are the questions this passage raises for me. And third, uh, what about us? I want to remind you what we've seen in this text and just point this out. When Jesus talks about the church, I want to remind you that church is always fundamentally personal. Remember how I had, we, we have a confession we make, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, or it's about our hope of life after death, or it's about our allegiance and our spirit. Please remember, no one can do that for you. No matter how great the church you go to is, no one can believe for you and confess for you and have the right spirit for you, make your allegiances for you. No one can do that. This is always a collection of disciples who are individually committed to Jesus. So, Your faith in Jesus can encourage me, but disconnection from Jesus is not your fault. If I'm disconnected, that's on me. So when I ask the question, what about us? I am saying, don't let church discussions distract you from the fact that Jesus still calls you to follow him and to trust him and to put your hope in him for your eternal life. Don't let all of this distract you from him. And I might add, don't forget that others need you too. And that as we focus so much on what we're thinking and what we're getting out of something, that we're also here to serve. And Jesus put us together to help and bless one another. Jesus wants to use his people to change the world through their teaching and through their influence and example. And we can do that. But we have to be committed personally to investing in that. When you read this text... I know there is a lot here, and we could say much more. I want you to leave it with the confidence that Jesus did what he promised when he said, I will build my church. And that there is a part of that promise that is yet to be finished when he said the gates of hell or Hades or death will not prevail against it. There's more to come. But just as assuredly as he built his people, he will finish the job. And so we can rest in confidence and serve in confidence in him. He has done what he said. The question is, where do I stand in relation to him? I want you to take this idea, and if there are questions that it raises for you, I'd love to talk with you more about it. But I would want to encourage you to think about your involvement, and if there's something more you need to do or think about, about how Jesus has built his people and how you're a part of that. There might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation. This is the time we've set aside. So that if you have a need, you can make that known to us. If you're ready to be a disciple of Jesus and for the first time be baptized into Christ, we'd love nothing more.
And for that to happen right now, if there is a need you have, we invite you to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.